April 13th will mark Thomas Jefferson's 277th birthday. Jefferson, perhaps more so than many of the other founding fathers, has always been revered. John Adams, on the other hand, is much more of a recent popular figure in terms of the early founding fathers. Both the combination of McCullough's book and the miniseries that HBO produced on him has brought Adams to the forefront. In many ways, Jefferson in particular is a controversial figure. He and Adams deferred in many ways, yet had one of the richest and longest correspondences of any U.S. presidents. But of course, we're here to talk about their graves. The graves of both Jefferson and Adams give keen insight into the differences between northern and southern burial traditions, as well as some of the struggles that continue to occur to preserve the grave sites of presidents. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View. So I apologize in advance. I am recording in the wild, so to speak. There is a very loud, obnoxious bird right next to me. And there is all kinds of noise. Um, Though I will say it's really nice to get out of my apartment for a change. So I apologize if there's a lot of background noise going on. Uh, I'm going to try to speak as close to the microphone as I can. Hopefully I'm not distorting. The sound test didn't pick up too much of the background noise. But if you hear a bird chirping, that's why. Because I am actually recording outside. And there is some sort of work going on next door. And all kinds of madness. Hopefully everyone is surviving quarantine all right. Um, I think I'm on day 26 or 27, something along those lines. But, you know, it is what it is. Given the popularity of both the episodes that I did on George Washington and Abraham Lincoln's grave sites, seeing that Jefferson's birthday was coming up, I decided to maybe talk a little bit about my cello because he is very similar to Washington in many ways. However... When I started doing the research, I found that, unfortunately, there's not as much background done, and there's a lot of open-ended question marks regarding exactly what happened to the graveyard at Monticello. So I'm going to go into some of that, but I also think it's kind of interesting. Um, Those of you who, you know, have done some presidential history and are familiar with the story probably know that both Jefferson and Adams died on the same day. Now... Adams is certainly older. Actually, until the death of Ronald Reagan back in 2005, John Adams was the longest living U.S. president, believe it or not. We wouldn't think that the second president of the United States lived to the ripe old age of 90, but he did. But the interesting thing is, is that he and Jefferson not only died on the same day, the day that they died, which, believe it or not, yes, was July 4th. So both of them died on July 4th, 1826, which, of course, is the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So, you know, the birth of the United States as a nation, 50 years later, two of the men who were really integral, one who obviously wrote the document, Jefferson, and then Adams, they both die on the same day. So it's a great irony. Again, those of you who have seen the John Adams miniseries probably remember this. It's a weird death story, to say the least. But I think it's interesting to show really the divergence of early America, both in terms of regionalism, in terms of 
just overall practices and theory is really, really strong when you compare and contrast their two grave sites, particularly in terms of the ideology that was emerging separately in the southern United States as opposed to the northern United States. Um, Jefferson and Adams, while they were good friends towards the end of their life, deferred vastly in terms of their political opinions. Jefferson is seen as being the founding father of the Republican Party, uh, and that aligns, this is the old Republican Party. Um, the old Republican Party is very close to the new Republican Party that exists in the United States today in the fact that it was against a strong central government, it favored giving power to the states, and it particularly was in favor of agrarian society. Obviously, Jefferson, though he had many jobs, was like Washington, he was a farmer, and he owned a large plantation in the form of Monticello, as opposed to Adams, which Adams is an interesting guy. You can call him a Federalist, and he certainly aligned for the most part with the Federalist Party, but then again, he also spent much of his later years putting down everything that Alexander Hamilton ever said, because he couldn't even really call himself Federalist. They're interesting guys, but like I mentioned in the intro, they have one of the most prolific correspondences. I have the two-volume set of the Adams-Jefferson letters, and I'm actually going to read to you a little bit from that later on. But breaking it down to start off with, um, so John Adams hails from Massachusetts, as I'm sure you know, started off his career as a lawyer. Much of his life is also spent on a farm, and I think that's worth speaking to because if you actually read a lot of his writings he does a lot of research into seed varieties and how to increase crop yields. Um, Peacefield was really his passion project and he lived there for much of his life uh, with his wife Abigail um, and their children um, which they had six children uh, including future president John Quincy Adams. Now Jefferson obviously Monticello is quite a different story. Jefferson Aside from being a statesman and a diplomat, incredibly well-educated, he's also a professionally trained architect. I mean, he designs Monticello, which is still considered to be one of the great pieces of United States architecture. He designed it. He designs the original quadrangle of the University of Virginia, which is sort of the gold standard for early design in colleges. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the University of Virginia and how it actually shapes the future of Jefferson's gravestone in a minute. But keep this in mind. These are men who, in terms of their gravesites being shaped by their lives, there's definitely an influence. And Thomas Jefferson, I think, is interesting because he is, as far as we know, the only president who designed his own gravesite. And he does it in a way that definitely pays an homage to his classicism, his training in both classical architecture and overall classical philosophy. Um, and it's interesting in choosing his own epitaph what he chooses to acknowledge. And I'll give you a hint. It never mentions the fact that he was president. If you recall back in the episode that Ashley and I did about Catholic graveyards, we talked about the JFK gravesite at Arlington. And I read a quote from Jacqueline Kennedy where she talks about the graves of both Washington and Jefferson and how their gravesites were reflective of their ideals. And I think that that is completely true. You'll probably be interested to know that, like the other presidential graves that I've discussed on the podcast, they have complicated histories. 
A little bit less so with Adam's Grave, but it certainly does change things. So I'm going to go break down, give you a full description of them, and talk a little bit about how they fit into the overall burial traditions both of the day and in their regions. And then continue by breaking down some of the weird after effects. Because the same way that we saw this with both Washington and Lincoln's gravesite, as important as we think presidential graves might be, they tend to get neglected and they tend to get forgotten often. So... I'm going to start by talking about John Adams' gravesite. Um, first of all, because it's a little bit shorter. Second of all, I am a New England girl, so I'm going to start with the Northerners. As I said, born and raised in Massachusetts, lived there for the majority of his life, with the exception of the time that he traveled, um, serving in the Continental Congress, obviously serving in the capital in Philadelphia. And John Adams was also the ambassador to England, so he spent some time over there. Now, John Adams... Um, one of the things that's probably most remarkable about him, and I'm going to embarrass my friend Sam Pickard right now, he and I were having a conversation recently, and I was saying if, if you could emulate a you know famous relationship, and I was thinking something from fiction, uh, and he said John and Abigail Adams, and I was, damn, that's a really good answer, uh, because they are probably the poster children for a truly egalitarian marriage that was far and away ahead of its day. Abigail Adams dies in 1818 of um, typhoid fever. So she does predecease her husband. And she is buried in the Hancock burial ground. And unfortunately, Massachusetts, probably because of the sheer volume of National Register nominations, the Hancock burial ground, the National Register nomination for it is not digitized. Uh, so I was very frustrated by that when I was doing my research. And I would like to know a little bit more about it. Uh, I can tell you this. So the Hancock Burial Ground actually takes its name from the Reverend John Hancock. Yes, the father of that John Hancock, the one with the big signature that you're familiar with. Um, he himself died in 1744. So he obviously is of another generation. Uh, John Adams himself was born in 1735, so he's still a child um, when Reverend Hancock dies. And this is the traditional, from what I can see, if you picture a very traditional New England common burial ground, which I have talked about them pretty significantly, it is located right in the center of what is today Quincy, Massachusetts. At the time, it was often called Braintree. There's Obviously, modern lines that mark out areas are different, and often you have unincorporated townships, things that are included. It doesn't really matter. Today, it is Quincy, Massachusetts. It is right on the town green, right next to where the meeting house was. Everything that we talked about when we talked about the formation of early New England burial grounds, the idea of memento mori, the idea of having that constant reminder of death, this is a perfect example of that. You know, very traditional New England style in terms of its markers as well. Lots of really beautiful slate, those head and shoulders tympanum stones, um, which, by the way, last week, the Association for Gravestone Studies, and this is not at all related, really, uh, got a unbelievable historic collection of gravestone rubbings. And yes, I know I'm the first person to say that gravestone rubbings are not a good thing, but these are truly remarkable. And a lot of these stones have since been lost. I'm going to see if I can get my hands on some of these because we have really high-resolution JPEGs. They are just beautiful. So they're super 
really, really unique examples of some of the early New England stone carvers, and I really hope that they're going to do a feature on them. Uh, we're talking about maybe doing some some quarantine-style um, live information, and if any of that comes up, I definitely will link you guys in. Again, like I said, side note, doesn't really have anything to do with the Hancock Burial Ground. So the Hancock Burial Ground is where when Abigail Adams dies in 1818, you know, eight years before her husband, this is where she is buried. And this is where it's frustrating because there's a lot of information on the current Adams burial site. There is not a whole heck of a lot of information on the original burial site. Now, what I can tell you is, is it probably was a vault burial. Now, the existing vault where John Adams, at least, was originally buried, it's a vault marked with the name of John Quincy Adams, who was their son, later president of the United States. He was elected right around the same time as his father's death, actually. So it's still there. The vault is there, but it is empty. It is not used. But that was the original burial place of John Adams... John Quincy Adams, Abigail Adams, they are later moved. Um, it's a very typical granite vault in the ground, similar to a lot of the receiving vaults that I have posted pictures of. I know I posted one of the um, the burial vault uh, in Concord when I was there. They are these tumulus style where they are actually built into the hill. Remember, it was great especially in New England with that freeze-thaw cycle, and low to the ground, just big enough that you could get someone in. Uh, it has obviously since been bricked up because it is no longer used, and it's an inactive vault. But you can definitely see it if you search. The Hancock Burial Ground obviously is not huge. You can definitely see it if you want to. But, like I said, that's not where he stayed. So you might ask, what happens? So, as of today, if you want to visit the grave of John Adams... He is buried in the crypt below the United First Parish Church of Quincy. Now, this is a Unitarian Universalist church, so think as loosey-goosey, unchristian as you possibly can get while still being a Christian church. It is considered to be one of the finest examples of Gothic Revival architecture in New England in terms of this. And it is a beautiful church. Um, it is built mainly of local Quincy granite, which has a lovely sort of bluish gray hue to it. Um, and then all of the woodwork is um, ashlar. So it, it, it really is quite a remarkable building. However, the building wasn't constructed until 1828, which, if you're keeping up, is after the death of John Adams. So that's one of the reasons that he was later moved there. Uh, and John Quincy maybe had some delusions of grandeur and didn't exactly know what he was going to do because he ended up having to knock down a wall in order to be able to fit everybody in the crypt together. The church itself is old. I mean, even by New England standards, um, the original congregation there is founded in 1639. The current building, built in 1828, was designed by Alexander Paris, who was a pretty significant architect from this era, particularly, well, sort of the tail end of the Federalist era, particularly known for that neoclassical revival style, in this case, Greek revival. 
Um, and the stonecutter for the Quincy Granite is also somebody, if you are familiar with architecture in Boston, uh, a man by the name of Abner Joy, also really, really well known. This is for a long time known as the Church of Presidents because it is the only location where you have two presidents buried in the same place. Um, I wouldn't count the gravesites at Darlington because that's a big cemetery. This is two presidents in the same building. It's also, a lot of it has been maintained by, so there is a local school named after the Adams, so they were very involved in a lot of this. This is not handled by, you know, the National Park Service. This is still a very local burial site. And that's one of the things that I do like about it, and I think it makes it a little bit more humble. So the crypt is low, and this is pretty classic. I know back when we talked about the New Haven burial ground, we talked about the original New Haven crypt. And, you know, if you're six feet tall and you try to walk down there, you're going to have to stoop. The Adams burial site is very similar to this. It's in a cordoned off part of the church basement, obviously because it was a new church. There are just four, the four burials there. So you have John Adams, Abigail Adams, his son, John Quincy Adams, and John Quincy's wife, uh, Louisa Adams, who, interestingly enough, if you didn't know this, is the only first lady who was foreign born, the only first lady that was born outside of the United States. The Adams, like I said, had quite a remarkable marriage, and the monuments that are included there very much speak to this. And obviously, these are epitaphs that were placed there significantly after their deaths, and it's nothing that they themselves planned, but I think that there's a lot to be said for it. Uh, so they were married October 25th, 1764. So if you look at that, that is a good long marriage. Uh, they have some tragedy, but for the most part, their children almost all live to adulthood, it's interesting, especially when we start to talk about Jefferson's gravesite, because there's going to be a big difference when you compare the two. So if you approach the crypt from the outside, what you're going to see is you're going to see a couple of marble plaques that are mounted out there. Um, and there are two that were one each for John Adams and Abigail Adams that were placed by their respective Daughters of the American Revolution groups. Uh, but the main monument um, is topped with the motto of the Adams family. So I think this is one good distinction to make in the fact that, you know, John Adams still has a family crest and he still has a family motto. He is close enough to his old world connections to still have that. Uh, so the motto in Latin is uh, libertatem. Amicitem fidem retenibus. And, you know, if you are up on your Latin, you can say confidently that it says, Faith and freedom and friendship, thou shalt persevere. Uh, so it's not too conceited as far as Latin mottos go. But so, the, so they have a joint plaque, and it says, Beneath these walls are deposited the mortal remains of John Adams son of John and Susanna Boylston Adams, second president of the United States, born 30th October, 1735. On the 4th of July, 1776, he pledged his life, fortune, and sacred honor to the independence of his country. 
On the 3rd of September, 1783, he affixed his seal to the definitive treaty with Great Britain, which acknowledged that independence and consummated the redemption of his pledge. On the 4th of July, 1826, he was summoned to the independence of immortality and to the judgment of God. Or I should say his God. This house will bear witness to his piety. This town, his birthplaces to his munificence, history to his patriotism, and posterity to the depth and compass of his mind. At his side sleeps till the trumpet shall sound Abigail, his beloved and only wife, daughter of William and Elizabeth Quincy Smith, in every relation of life a pattern of filial, conjugal, maternal, and social virtue. Born November 22, 1744, deceased 28 October 1818, age 74, married 25 October 1764. During a union of more than half a century, they survived in harmony of sentiment, principle, and affection, the tempest of common commotion, meeting undaunted and surmounting the terrors and trials of that revolution, which secured the freedom of their country, improved the condition of their times, and brightened the prospects of futurity to the race of man upon earth. Pilgrim, from lives thus spent, thy earthly duties learn. From fancy's dreams to active virtue turn. Let freedom, friendship, faith thy soul engage, and serve like them thy country and thy age. It's a little flowery. I will give you that. But I think it's a very interesting and very touching tribute to a marriage of 54 years. Uh, one which, like I said, is probably the paramount example that you can think of for any historical marriage in terms of equality, in terms of mutual respect. I think it's very interesting because even though John Adams, if you look at his overall philosophy, does not strike me as a very typical New England Puritan, there are definitely echoes of it when you read that epitaph. There is also, to me, a very New England sense in that epitaph of the idea that government and the church are inseparable. And the idea that the church and this is a very New England idea, in the form of the meeting house, in the form of the church, you also have the seat of government, and that you have his innate connection to his town. There's a lot to unpack there in that epitaph. Uh, a lot of the language is not just flowery, but to me it seems old-fashioned and almost biblical. I am a sucker for a good epitaph, and I think that that's a really solid one. They also very much play up his role in the American Revolution. And as I said, you know, until quite recently, Jefferson has always been well known, but Adams was definitely more of the underappreciated founding fathers. Even though if you look at presidential historians today, they tend to give him one of the highest approval ratings. Uh, he was very successful in terms of some of his movements, particularly trying to keep the United States out of another war. You know, when you have a very young country, and particularly one that has a leader that is as prolific and as 
as beloved as Washington. I mean, talk about a tough act to follow. You know, Washington dies in 1799, and, you know, as his successor, obviously, though, he wasn't in office when he died, I can't imagine that anything was ever easy for Adams. But he definitely was beloved of his hometown, and I think that this is a reflection of that, where he was seen as the hometown boy. He was seen as the local Quincy boy. And they are trying to convey that, and they are also trying to frame it in the context of him being a New England man. And I know that that was a lot of the prejudice that was seen against him, you know, as they chose to put the new capital in the South. It was seen as being somewhat controversial because he was seen as being very removed from the seat of government and from a large part of this new country, which Jefferson himself would not be. Adam's grave is very simple. Uh, the new crypt, you'll see it has whitewashed walls, nothing fancy. It is closer to the new tomb at Mount Vernon in its design. Very low ceiling. Definitely a tall man could not stand up in there. Uh, the box tombs are very, very simple. They are granite, uh, and they just have very simple, uh, to me of the era of that sort of like early 19th century. They have very typical lettering of that with just names. They, they are as plain as you can get. They're just, again, gray Quincy granite, similar to what the actual church around them is constructed of. There is a flag draped on John Adams' grave, and it is a, it's a small flag. It's not like a full coffin drape that you would see at a modern funeral it's a small flag but it is the actual flag that was in use I can't remember if it was during his presidency or at the time of his death uh, so it's an old-fashioned American flag they don't use a modern American flag which I thought was kind of interesting but again very plain uh, there is historically always been a wreath laying uh, on the anniversary of both John Adams birthday in October and of course John Quincy Adams as well I'm not focusing as much on him because he's a little bit more outside the purview. But you pretty much have everything you need to know about John Quincy Adams' grave here, too. The early patriots and the early founding fathers from New England all have these sort of very typical, if not Puritan in their belief system, but Puritan in practice burials in a communal place. You don't hear, even though Peacefield, his farm, was beloved and he spent much of his life there, he didn't choose to be buried at Peacefield. Um, and it doesn't even, from the research that I have done, seem like that was even a consideration. So I think that that speaks to the depth of that communal burial space in the New England tradition and beyond that in terms of um, just continued practice. Now... In contrast, and this is something that I've talked a little bit about, uh, certainly with my episode on Washington, but while you do have communal burial grounds, and some of them have a very reminiscent feel of a New England burial ground in major cities in the South, particularly coastal cities um, like Charleston, like Savannah, you do have colonial era graveyards there. 
you have things like the Circular Cemetery in Charleston, Colonial Park Cemetery in Savannah, where if you look at the style of the markers, even often you can have markers that were made by very skilled New England craftsmen that were shipped because there was a constant coastal trade route there. For the most part, if you get away from those major settlements on the coast and you go further out, you are going to get local burials, either in pioneer cemeteries that encompass just a couple of families or individual cemeteries on each plantation. And if you visit any of the intact plantations around Charleston, for example, um, Middleton Hall, things like that, almost all of them have a plantation cemetery. Now, as we discussed with Washington, it doesn't appear that for the most part that these were really well planned out. Often I think it was more of an extension of the idea that the need arose. And the one thing that most of these places had was land in abundance. Uh, you have a lot more space to spread out than you did in New England or even the mid-Atlantic places like, you know, around Philadelphia and whatnot. And so as a result, you can set aside a decent plot of land for use as a family cemetery without really hurting your crop yields or anything else. Now, in the case of Jefferson's Monticello, which Monticello is, again, it could be a massive discussion. Again, one of the most significant American houses, truly, truly beautiful, designed by Jefferson himself. With him, the cemetery at Monticello starts with the death of a man named Dabney Carr. And Dabney Carr was married to Jefferson's sister, Martha. And aside from being just his brother-in-law, he was a great friend of Jefferson's. They had grown up together. They knew each other well. And they served in the House of Burgesses together. Which, if you remember, the House of Burgesses was the local governing body for the state of Virginia. And he dies May 16th, 1773, at just age 30. And his death greatly impacts Jefferson. Jefferson is devastated by his death. Um, and we do have evidence that he was originally buried um, at a place called Shadewell uh, immediately following his death. But Jefferson seemed to feel very strongly personally, and there's no evidence that Dabney Carr ever actually um, asked him this. Uh, he died pretty suddenly of some sort of bilious complaint, which to me um, sounds like it's probably, you know, some sort of infection. Bilious tends to mean that you're turning jaundice, meaning yellow, which could mean liver failure. It could mean a lot of different things. Back then, who knows? It's not like they were doing proper postmortems or anything. So he dies suddenly, and we have evidence that on May 22nd, so just about a week after his death, Jefferson has two of his workers out uh, grubbing and clearing a grave site for his friend. And they're pretty specific. He actually, Jefferson kept pretty good records. Uh, and he actually, you know, cites that he has an 80-square-foot plot opened up. And uh, he has chosen this location based on the presence of an oak tree. And this oak tree is well documented, and it's clearly a story that he told again and again as being Dabney Carr's favorite from his childhood. 
like I say, shades of Jenny and Forrest Gump definitely here. Uh, and this oak tree survives, and the story is kind of handed down until the government eventually takes over the property in the 1880s. And then there are documents of the federal government having to remove the stump of what is now a dead oak tree in 1913. So it has a pretty prolific life, all things considered. Um, I'm assuming this is a live oak because it is the south. But even the lifespan of a really big live oak is usually about 150 years. So assuming it's a mature oak tree at the time of Dabney Carr's death in the 1770s, that's a pretty long life for a tree no matter how you slice it. Um, if you recall the discussion that we had about the other burials at Mount Vernon, which there are numerous, uh, at least 30 more documented burials there, uh, they were not well taken care of. Uh, these are all in-ground burials that are occurring at Monticello. And I've read that there are up to 50 family members buried there. Um, after Dabney Carr, it appears that the next person who dies is going to be Jefferson's mother, who dies March 31st, 1776, at the age of 57. Her grave is not marked until the 1880s, around the time that the graveyard is actually taken over by the federal government so we don't have a lot of information about it um, but we do obviously know from records when Jane Randolph died. Um, Jefferson's son dies in June of 1777. His daughter Lucy and that was actually his only son uh, not named. His daughter Lucy Elizabeth dies in the spring of 1781. His wife dies September 6, 1782. He has a second daughter named Lucy Elizabeth, who was born not long before his wife dies. Uh, she dies in 1785, around the age of three. Uh, his daughter, Mary Jefferson, uh, one of two, Mary Jefferson Randolph, um, one of two of his daughters, Mary and Martha, that survived to adulthood. She dies still quite young in 1804 at the age of 25. Uh, eventually, his other daughter, Martha, will be buried there. His granddaughter, Anne Carey Bankhead, uh, Ellen Wales Randolph, Mary Buchanan Randolph, who was his great-granddaughter, so on and so forth. The interesting thing is, is that there appear to be only two non-Jefferson family-related burials there, and we have documentation at least for one of them. Uh, and that is a woman by the name of Mary Stewart, which I think it's interesting. Mary Stewart was actually the wife of Jefferson's blacksmith, a man by the name of William Stewart, uh, who is, you know, I mean, one of the things about Monticello is that there is some really, really beautiful ironwork. So clearly he held this man in pretty high regard uh, to have buried his wife there when she died in 1805. The other rumored burial, and we don't have a marker for this, we don't have any kind of evidence for this, um, is the wife of a merchant um, from Florence by the name of Mrs. Philip Mazzi, who supposedly was traveling with her husband to Virginia and died there and was buried at Monticello. I saw mixed information about that. I don't know if that's necessarily true. Overall, though, I mean, the Jefferson family does use this for multiple generations. And as a result, there is definitely family involvement. Unfortunately, due to extreme debt, Monticello is sold almost immediately after, within, you know, I think a year or two of Jefferson's death. Um, and the first owner doesn't do a whole great job taking care of it. Um, but the next owner, uh, a man by the name of Uriah Levy, was a, he bought it purposely because he was such a huge fan of Jefferson. He was a military man, a colonel from New York. 
and the preservation of Monticello was really one of his goals. So he seems to have done a decent job of stewardship, and obviously we know that Jefferson's ancestors at this point are still being buried there. So the question is, what kind of burial does Jefferson actually have? And to my knowledge, Thomas Jefferson is the only U.S. president who designed his own gravesite, and he designed it about a month before he died, and he left written instructions, and you can see these. I will definitely post a picture of this. He has a little sketch of the memorial that he wants, and he wrote his own epitaph. Um, I think almost to just make sure that uh, he could kind of control what was going to happen. Um, also, he has a surprising amount of foresight. And by foresight, I mean the fact that he, I think he had a really good judge of human nature. Because one of the things that he actually states is the fact that he wants his grave to be built out of a very durable material. So, he says, quote, Could the dead feel any interest in monuments or other remembrances of them? He would be gratified by a plain die or cube surmounted by an obelisk, bearing these words. Here was buried Thomas Jefferson. author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. Like I hinted at earlier, nothing about him being president, nothing about him being governor, nothing about anything. So the three things that he considered to be his great legacy were the drafting of the Declaration of Independence, the drafting of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and then lastly, the founding of the University of Virginia, which I think Jefferson is truly a Renaissance man, not just in terms of his really wide interest in things like architecture, literature, you know, being extremely learned. I think also he had a great respect for knowledge. And so the things that he was most proud of were ideological as opposed to physical. I mean, obviously, the University of Virginia is a physical entity. But I think for him, it was the idea that it would perpetuate ideals and values, things like the practice of the freedom of religion, things like fighting against tyranny. I think that the ideological factors were much more important to him than any kind of office. And one of the things I talked about, I remember, when we discussed George Washington was the fact that um, the actual dates, the old system of dates had changed. And Jefferson actually acknowledges this because he wants on the, um, the base of the marker below the obelisk to have his birth and death dates. And with his birth, death, with his birth dates, he has the letters OS for old style, indicating that the dates have changed. Again, I think it's an acknowledgement of sort of this erudite knowledge. It's a little quirky, but I think it's a lot of fun. Now, if you go to Monticello today, the same way I said that Jefferson's mother's stone is not original, neither is Jefferson's. By my count, and different stories vary a little bit, it appears that Jefferson's marker that exists today is the fourth that has been in place. We do know that the first marker wasn't placed until 1833. So you definitely have a lot. You have a lapse of seven years before the monument that Jefferson himself requests is placed there. 
at which point Monticello actually no longer belongs to his family. Aside from that, um, one of Jefferson's statutes was the fact that it be built of a durable material because he was very cognizant of the fact that people might come to his grave and they might try to chip off little pieces. And damn it, if he wasn't right. Now, Jefferson's original grave market... I say this with a grain of salt. What we believe to be Jefferson's original grave marker does still exist. And if you look at it, it does not bear any resemblance to sort of the traditional noble obelisks that we think of from rural cemeteries. Now, Jefferson dies not too long, about four years before Mount Auburn is founded. So he dies right on the cusp of this. If I had to guess, and this is my personal opinion, I don't have anything to back this up. I think Jefferson was strongly influenced by some of the markers that can be seen in Bruton Parish Churchyard in Williamsburg. And Bruton Parish Churchyard is perhaps the finest collection that we have of colonial markers. There's something like 140 in the churchyard, and they still do uh, internments and inurnments of cremated remains there, but it's obviously been full for quite some time. Um, It's one of the few remaining original buildings in Colonial Williamsburg. Obviously, a lot of them are reproductions. Remarkably lovely brick church. Um, The last time I was in Williamsburg, I saw a concert there and just, just absolutely lovely. And the churchyard is shady and very pretty with brick pathways. There's a good mix of different types of monuments there, but there are several what I would call Baroque monuments. Um, And one of them is sort of a stunted obelisk set over a base, and it has lion's claw feet. And if you look at this, and a few of the other sort of like truncated obelisks, boy, Jefferson's marker looks a lot like these. So I would not be surprised if, as a man who had spent a great deal of time in Williamsburg, he was inspired by a lot of these. Um, Obviously, Bruton Parish Church is right down from the College of William & Mary, Like I said, I don't have any evidence to back this up, but if you look at the drawing and you look at some of these monuments, I would say that there's definitely a correlation. Now, as another interesting aside, the original monument, because he wanted it made out of a durable material like granite, was too hard to carve the inscription on. So the original monument actually had a marble plaque affixed to it. Talked extensively about marble, how it's a softer stone. And how it was very easy to carve into intricate and very, very beautiful things. But I think it's great because you see the change in technology. Certainly not to say that there wasn't any granite being used for markers before then. But marble obviously is the king of the 19th century. And this to me is a perfect example of how technology changes. And how for the ease and the intricacy of that particular epitaph, they had to use marble. Now, you might say, if I want to see the original, if I'm going to Monticello, I'm just going to see a a reproduction from probably about 1885, which is around the time that the U.S. government took over control, and they actually replaced it for a cost of about $10,000, whatever the most recent one was. I know that they replaced one for $5,000, then one for $10,000. Again, it's a little bit hard because they all look the same, and they try to date them from photographs, and there's some issues with that, certainly. Where is the original? Well, the original is actually at the University of Missouri. 
Now, you might say, how the heck did Thomas Jefferson's gravestone get to the University of Missouri? Why was it there? For what reason? Well, when the U.S. government took over the gravesite and they negotiated with the descendants of Thomas Jefferson and acquired the deed and made agreements about new internments and disinternments and all of that, they essentially decided to offer this to someone. Now, part of Jefferson's legacy, obviously you remember, is the Louisiana Purchase, which he purchases from a very cash-strapped Napoleon um, in 1804. And the University of Missouri is actually the one of the first universities that is established in this new territory that is acquired by Jefferson. So that's one thing. The second thing is that they have a very strong tie to the University of Virginia in terms of the fact that they used the very classically inspired model, the design for the quadrangle. All of it is based off the University of Virginia, which of course was designed by Thomas Jefferson. So they were able to get this monument. Now this monument, interestingly enough, has traveled around extensively. It's hopped around. It was at one point on display in one of the buildings. That building burned down in 1892. The stone survived, but the original marble plaque that I talked about that was affixed to it was damaged by the heat. Marble often does not hold up well under extreme heat and pressure. Uh, so that actually cracked, and it's still stored in a vault somewhere in the university. But you can actually go. There's a Jefferson um, Garden. Uh, I believe it's called the Mizzou Garden. Um, and this garden is planted with many of the original varieties of plants that come from Monticello. Um, I know there's a lot of columbine and things like that planted there. There is a bronze statue of Jefferson drafting the Declaration of Independence that was installed in 2001, which has strangely been the center of a lot of controversy. Um, students were protesting it and trying to say that it should be removed, calling you know, out Jefferson for his role in keeping slaves and terming him a rapist over the controversy of him having fathered children with his slave, Sally Hemings, who was a who was underage teenager at the time. The statue is still there. This was about five years ago, but it definitely stirred up quite a bit of controversy. I don't see that anybody ever argued about the gravestone. I think because many people could walk by it and not actually realize what it is. It's sort of a stumpy, sad-looking granite obelisk-ish thing because it certainly doesn't look like an obelisk anymore. Uh, it looks like an obelisk that melted. It's like if you left a cupcake out in the sun and the frosting started to melt. That's kind of what it looks like. Uh, and it no longer has that plaque affixed to it. So I think you could probably walk by it and just assume it's another piece of crappy sculpture without actually understanding what it is or its significance. It amazed me that there doesn't seem to be more of a fuss about this. Um, the gravestone was, it did leave the university once, and it was actually exhibited in St. Louis in 1904 um, as part of the World's Fair that was held there this year, that year. Um, also the centennial of the Louisiana Purchase, which obviously, like I just said, Jefferson is pretty instrumental in. Uh, apparently, Virginia tried to get it back for a similar type exhibition there. And the university refused because they were afraid that they wouldn't get it back. So it is one of the points of pride for the university, and they are holding on to that thing with both hands. 
But it's one of those stories that until I started researching it, I never really knew about. And I didn't understand the fact that somehow Jefferson's original grave marker exists, but it's not where it started off. And I'm sure if they really fought the university, they probably could. But they've had the classiness not to. Which brings me back to the idea of what this says about burial traditions. Um, obviously, Monticello is still very closely linked with the life of Thomas Jefferson. It's one of the more visited houses. I don't think it's as popular as Mount Vernon, but it's pretty close. Um, definitely recognizable. I don't know if people necessarily go there seeking out the grave of Jefferson. And if you look at Monticello's website, even, they don't put as much emphasis on it as the tomb at Mount Vernon gets. Tomb at Mount Vernon is very well documented. They have tours. And not to say that they don't talk about it at all on the Monticello website, but it's definitely not as prominently featured. If John Adams' grave was a reflection of the fact that he was a hometown boy and he exhibited those sort of stalwart, hardy New England traditions of not just being a hometown boy, but staying close and keeping the fear of God. I mean, what does Jefferson's grave say about him? I honestly don't know. I think his gravesite is a little strange. The fact that they didn't fight harder to keep the original monument there. There's almost a little bit of a keeping up with the Joneses, you know, all about appearance because they keep just replacing this stone again and again. They definitely talk about the fact that he designed his own monument, but I don't think that there's as much, and they, they put a lot of emphasis on, you know, what his chosen epitaph was. I mean, it might be simple, but I, I'm sorry. I think that flowery and a little bit over the top as it is, the, the one that was dedicated to John Adams is a little bit more poignant. Personal opinion. Um, maybe that's just my Yankee coming out. Jefferson's gravesite, it's certainly prolific in the sense that it does keep that idea of a family cemetery up. You have many, many generations of Jefferson's descendants that are buried there. And there's a long tradition there. Whereas I think, you know, John Adams, it's him and his son. And, you know, his family's certainly buried nearby, but it's less of a multi-generational issue. So that's certainly a clear dichotomy. In New England, it's all about communal burial. Even there, he is buried in the church as part of the central community. Jefferson, it's isolation of his family, or at least close workers, uh, like that blacksmith's wife. I don't know. It's a weird gravesite. I don't have an easy answer. Um, there's a great respect between the two men. John Adams' final words are, you know, documented as, you know, Jefferson lives. He didn't realize that Jefferson actually predeceased him by a couple of hours. But... I was curious, so I pulled out my copy of the Adams-Jefferson letters, trying to get an idea of what the relationship between these two men was and how that kind of is reflected in their grave sites. And so going up to the last letters between them. So Jefferson's last letter was written at Monticello on March 25th, 1826. And he's discussing um, an upcoming visit. Dear Sir, meaning John Adams, my grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, being on a visit to Boston, would think he had seen nothing were he to leave Boston without having seen you. Although I truly sympathize with you in the trouble of these interruptions, 
Yet I must for him ask permission to pay you his personal respects. Like other young people, he wishes to be able in the winter nights of old age to recount to those around him what he has heard and learnt of the heroic age preceding his birth, and of which the Argonauts particularly he was in time to have seen. It was the lot of our early years to witness nothing but the dull monotony of colonial subservience, and of our riper ones to breast the labors and perils of working out of it. Theirs are the halcyon calms succeeding the storm to which Aragosi had so stoutly weathered. Gratify his ambition, then by receiving his best bow, and my solicitude for your health, by enabling him to bring me a favorable account of it. Mine is but indifferent, but not so of my friendship and respect for you. Thomas Jefferson. So I think that's really interesting, him talking about his grandson, which his grandson actually lives until, I believe, the 1880s. He's the, sort of like the last one right before the government takes over the family cemetery, um, Thomas Jefferson Randolph. The idea that he is making this pilgrimage to Boston and you know, his grandfather goes, well, you can meet my old friend John Adams. And he's in awe because he wants to meet this man. He wants to know these men who 50 years before started the nation. And keep in mind, John Adams is 90 years old. Even in the 1820s, that is ancient. I mean, to him, it must have been like going to see Methuselah. And the fact that he wants to go and he wants to visit just to hear him tell the old war stories of when his grandfather was young and... Uh, to me, this is so interesting, especially considering that it's, it's a, his last letter and he's kind of like, oh, I'm going to ask a favor for my idiot grandson. But Adam's letter is equally entertaining. Quincy, April 17th, 1826. My dear sir, your letter of March 25th has been a cordial to me. And the more consoling as it was brought by your grandsons, Mr. Randolph and Mr. Coolidge. Everybody connected with you is snatched up so that I cannot get any of them to dine with me. They are always engaged. How happens it that you Virginians are all sons of Anak? Which, if you're not up on your Bible, that's a reference to the book of Joshua. The people of Anak were kind of wild and they were defeated. That's all you need to know. He's, he's calling them a bunch of crazy young hooligans. We New Englanders are but pygmies by the side of Mr. Randolph. I was very much gratified with Mr. Randolph and his conversation. Your letter is one of the most beautiful and delightful I have ever received. Public affairs go on much pretty as usual, perpetual chicanery, and far more personal abuse than there used to be. Mrs. Randolph and McDuffie have out-heroded Herod. Again, another biblical reference, if you remember Herod, the puppet king at the time of the birth of Christ. Mr. McDuffie seems to be swallowed up in chivalry. Such institutions ought not to be suffered in a Republican government. Our American chivalry is the worst in the world. It has no laws, no bounds, no definitions. It seems to be all in caprice. My love to all your family and best wishes for your health. John Adams. 
And so that was the last letter between the two of them. And I think it's great because they almost – I love that they're poking fun at it because these were men who, even though they were some of the most educated and really worthy of their day, they just saw themselves as regular folk to a certain degree. And their graves, even for graves of presidents and leaders, are still fairly humble. And I think that, you know, their sort of good-natured ribbing of each other and teasing of the young bloods at the end of their life definitely heralds this. I mean, John Adams, when he's writing that letter, does not sound like a 90-year-old man. There is an underlying humility and, I think, underlying principle that is really interesting about both these men. And... I think that was why it was so interesting to compare and contrast them. Their graves, I confess, I mean, I read, I feel like, pretty much everything that I could. There are some historical accounts of these graveyards and everything like that, but they are not super well studied. They certainly are not as sexy and overblown as the graves of Washington and Lincoln, not by a long shot. But they still are interesting because if you read cemeteries and if you are interested in how cemeteries are reflections of the cultures in which they exist, these are two perfect examples. Um, hopefully someday I will see the real grave of Thomas Jefferson. I would very much like to see that if I ever find myself at the University of Missouri. Um, still blows my mind that it's there, but you know what? The United States is a quirky and strange place like that. So a very happy birthday to Mr. Jefferson this upcoming Monday. Um, love him or hate him, he is an undeniable part of the American tradition and the American rhetoric. You cannot separate America from the Declaration of Independence. And I think rightfully so, that was one of the things that he considered to be his greatest contribution. As always, thank you for your ratings, reviews, all of your support on the social media platforms. You can find us at www.tombwithaview.weebly.com, tombwithaviewpodcast at gmail.com if you need to get a hold of me, on Facebook at tombwithaviewpodcast, and on Instagram at tomb period with period a period view. Given the fact that I'm looking at another couple of weeks of quarantine, I do have the next couple of episodes planned out. I've got a little bit of a mix. Um, one or two topics that have been requested uh, by listeners. So if you have something that you would like to know about, something that you are interested in, please feel free to let me know because I'm definitely getting around to some of those. Uh, and I would love to add more to my list. Um, not that I don't have a long list of topics I want to cover, but I also want to talk about the things that you're interested in. Uh, I probably would not have chosen today's topic. I'm glad that I did it. Um, but seeing, going by the numbers, you are really interested in presidential history. So I covered another topic just in time for Mr. Jefferson's birthday. So please feel free. Uh, as always, keep safe out there. Uh, keep quarantining. Um, do your best out there. And feel free to let me know if you want to hear about anything. For now, I'm Liz Clappin, and this is Tune With A View. <laughs>